0: mm <laughs> Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and this is a place where we'll be talking to lots of women about their perspectives on healthcare and the place where it intersects with technology. Before we get started with our regular programming, we wanted to give you some insight into our own perspectives. On today's episode, we're going to be talking with Robin Roberts, who also happens to be the co-host of this show. Robin has extensive knowledge of the healthcare industry, having worked with hospitals, clinics, and medical practices throughout the country as a consultant. In this episode, she shares her story about how her world turned upside down when her youngest child, Carter, who at the age of three, fell sick on a Friday night and in the course of a couple days completely lost the ability to control his body. He's now quadriplegic and needs round-the-clock care. She still works in healthcare, but under a whole different context. I learn a lot from her perspective, and I hope you will too. So let's begin.
1: Two years ago, while we were co-workers, on a Friday night after a long week of travel, helping all those clients with meaningful use and PQRS and all that stuff, and we have three kids, our youngest, who was three and a half at the time, uh, got ill and vomited after dinner. And... Went to bed a little bit early, didn't really think a whole lot of it having three kids because he seemed okay after his bath. And the next morning was up pretty early, but drank a huge cup of water, probably from having been so thirsty after you know being sick the night before. And was a little lethargic during the day, but was eating, snacking on things. And after being sick, I really didn't think much of it. So that night he went to bed pretty early, but he had been up early. So that was Saturday. So Saturday, a little bit off, but eating, drinking, No reason to believe anything else is wrong. No other symptoms, nothing. Sunday morning, about eight o'clock, I walk by his room. I look at our oldest daughter and said, is Carter up yet? And she said, no, I don't think so. And that seemed pretty atypical for a three and a half year old who's usually on like a light switch first thing in the morning. And I walked into his room where he was in a big boy bed and he was on the floor in a ball and he said, mommy, help me, help me. And I picked him up and his head flopped back and his right arm kind of fell backwards as well. It didn't seem like he had any muscular control, he seemed just very weak. So we picked him up and ran off to the emergency room. My husband helped strap him in the car, we get into the emergency room and the first physician that came in said, Ma'am, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes when kids get sick, they get really tired and lethargic. And being a mom of three and having had the girls be sick before and other issues, pretty typical stuff, I looked at him and I said, We we've dealt with a lot of stuff. This isn't that. And he kind of walked out. And it was around that time that another doctor came back in and looked over Carter, did an assessment and said he was worried about meningitis, a possible stroke, although that wouldn't be really common, or something else, maybe neurological. He was asking me if maybe he fell out of bed, et cetera, and told me that they were going to do a spinal tap, a CT scan, all of these things that sounded really familiar. They were going to get blood. They were going to give him a saline IV. to get him hydrated? And just asked all these questions. Fast forward, Several hours. Carter's continuing to get weaker. He can't really talk real well. And the spinal tap comes back that his white blood cell count is super elevated. But every other diagnostic, his CT scan, his MRI, everything else looked, quote, normal. And so they admit him to the PICU. My husband comes to take over late that night. No one really knows what's going on. They're just trying to manage his symptoms. But at this point in time, he's seeming okay. They start some antibiotic, and I end up going home at around 11 p.m. Woke up really early the next morning on Monday. My husband was at his bedside all night and it was about five in the morning. I felt compelled to go early to the hospital and so called the neighbor to watch our other girls and I walked into Carter being intubated. And what we would come to learn over the next several days is that he had something seemingly neurological going on. He lost all ability to move. He lost his ability to breathe from that morning forward, and they speculated over the course of about 14 days, different things that could have been Guillain-Barre, Epstein-Barr, something known as ADEM, but basically indicated that based on all of these things that he would get back to a baseline or a relatively healthy or, quote, normal baseline, that we had a long road in front of us, but he was going to get better. It wasn't until two MRIs and three respiratory procedures later and him coding twice that we found out from another neurologist that consulted on this case that he had something called acute flaccid myelitis. It took us about three weeks to get that diagnosis. And in the meantime, he was treated with steroids, which may or may not have been detrimental, uh, IVIG, and ultimately 14 days of plasmapheresis. So we changed hospitals after that. That's when the plasmapheresis began. We spent about five and a half months doing inpatient therapy up at Kennedy Krieger Institute, which is right next to Johns Hopkins, we're connected to their facility. And so we took turns being with him and he made little to no physical improvement. So long story short, a Q flaccid myelitis rendered him event-dependent, true quadriplegic, who is completely flaccid, his entire body, no head or neck control. He is more floppy than an infant is the best way to describe it. And the only thing he can use is his four right toes, although he has regained his ability to talk, even though he still has the trach and vent, um, and is starting to eat by mouth some now. But he has a G-tube for all of his nutrition, and um, we were told that some families get better in other ways, that even though Carter wasn't getting better, we would come home, and as everyone likes to put it, that you would have a new normal.
0: Wow. So how long was he in the hospital in total?
1: From the day I scooped him up and ran out of there till we came home, it was a full five months.
0: I can't even imagine what you must have gone through during that time. Not just from the first days or weeks or even months, but it's been two years now. Have you guys actually found a new normal?
1: I've come to kind of resent that term, new normal. It is, It is a new normal, and it's different, and... You know, I, I tell people it, it kind of reminded me of having a kid for the, the first time. You know, everything is kind of foreign. Things take a long time. All of the tasks, everything he is dependent on for someone to do, whether it's change a diaper, brush his teeth, change position, move his hand, scratch his nose get an eyelash from his eye, adjust the way his feet are, if he's hot, if he's cold, all of these things have just become integrated in the day. But when we first came home, it definitely wasn't easy. But I remember his care routine the first morning, I think it took me three and a half hours. And now I can do it in about 20 minutes. And so me, my husband, our two older daughters have come to know small clinical tasks or where Carter's things are, what he needs. And so it really changed every single minute and every single hour of every day because even at nighttime, he still dependent on someone for everything. And so it impacted our entire family and, and him and even just the accommodations for the technology in our house that sustains his life. We just found a way to try and work on it a piece at a time. And it was not easy because it was all brand new. And even though I had the background I had, and we had a lot of people supporting us, it would all felt very, very foreign. And now, even though it's hard, a lot of those tasks are second nature.
0: So can you take me through that daily routine? What's involved? Typically,
1: starting at seven in the morning, we measure out Carter's blended diet. And add it with the right amount of water because he has to have a certain number of calories in the day to maintain his weight based on the child, his size that doesn't exercise. And so you have to get, you know, the grams of food and the water right. We draw up his morning medication and supplements and put all of those into syringes to go into his G-tube. You have to get this bag ready that that food even goes in. It has to be primed through with water, and that has to get set up. You have to reset the rate on it the night before, get everything hung. You connect the extension to his belly so that you can start that process. And simultaneously while that's going on, there is a symphony of other tasks that happens along with it to wash his face, brush his teeth, get his clothes out and get him changed, which changing a 50-pound child or anyone that knows or anyone that's listening that's tried to do that is not an easy task. You're changing his diaper or helping him toilet, depending on what's going on. And since he is vent dependent he and he can't cough on his own or clear secretions as a result of this disease, a lot of that symphony of tasks involves nebulizing medicine through his vent lines, which are some of the meds that are drawn up. You have to wait for them to go in a certain order or certain succession. And we wrap this vest around him that shakes his torso up, the percussion therapy. And it helps basically rattle all the stuff in his chest free that, cause he can't move it or cough it up and he's not you know, walking and ambulating for those things to move like you or I. That is a 10-minute process, just the vest by itself. It has to run for a certain amount of time. And that happens in the morning and the evening as part of this care. Then you have to do cough assist, which is a machine that pushes the air in and out of him for a certain number of sets, a certain amount of time. And every time you're done with one of those sets, you are suctioning a line down through his trachea to pick up everything that's been rattled loose. And then he has to be moved and sat up and put into his wheelchair once all of this stuff is done. And it just used to take forever. And in the meantime, Carter's hollering that he wants a certain cartoon. He wants the blinds a certain way, the lights a certain way, that the fan should be higher or lower depending on what's going on. He may or may not need oxygen to support him while you're doing those respiratory tasks. And that's typically what goes on in the morning. The nighttime's a little more involved because his G-tube and his tray uh, that's in his trachea gets cleaned. The dressings on it have to be changed every day. He has more nighttime meds than he does morning meds and just all of those little things. So everything that you would do in a day, he still needs done. And, you know, at three and a half years old, he wasn't doing a ton by himself. But the contrast between what he could do versus what he requires now is definitely pretty stark.
0: And one thing that's so wild about his situation is though, even though he can't move... The majority of his body, he's still 100% mentally there. Is that right? Yeah. So when he was first intubated, and even after he
1: got his trach, it had, um, it's called a cuff. It's basically this little bubble that kind of fills the trachea. So air goes in and out, but he couldn't talk. So for the first 102 days of his journey, we didn't know if he could talk or understand us other than really starting to blink towards the end of that period of time. But yeah, after he was able to start talking, learn how to kind of pace his vocals with the air that pushes in and out of the ventilator, his cognition is absolutely intact. You know, what I've learned from kind of the special needs community is that he would be described as neurotypical, super smart kid like his biggest sister. And so, yeah, cognitively, his personality, the things any three-year-old little boy or now five-year-old little boy would holler at his sisters about all still very much there, which is then just we're just super grateful for that, that he's able to articulate his needs. He definitely has a, a sense of humor. Um, and can be quite sassy like most small kids and you know it's those are definitely happy little moments is when his personality shines through and he's able to verbalize it
0: so your relationship with healthcare has definitely changed you're now pretty much a full-time caregiver and you and your family have had a very steep learning curve I'm sure you have all kinds of different medical devices and technologies in your home would you mind sharing what some of those are
1: Yeah, I think I. um, You definitely have to learn a lot. Carter has so many specialists, like a lot of kids with either special needs or medically fragile kids. If there's a system of the body for him, we have a doctor for it, along with a primary care physician. And one of the most challenging things is with a rare diagnosis, which acute flaccid myelitis is. It's you know, if you're listening, it's basically you know, despite being perfectly healthy, fully vaccinated, um, it's basically like a modern day polio um we've inherited all of these doctors that go with every system of his body that's been compromised which through to date has really been pretty much everything probably with the exception of maybe a dermatologist so you have to not only become an expert in articulating the needs of the rare disease but also knowing what's going on with every aspect of him and what's needed or even what's really possible and trying to anticipate some needs and reading about them and becoming as expert as you can, so that you can go in. You know, one of the things we we fought really hard for was to to get Carter on a real food diet instead of you know giving him formula. Um, and we tried to do that very early on. We were told there were no other options. And then when we got up to Hopkins, you know, the dietitian literally walks in with a cart full of options and explained all of the pros, the cons, or whatever. And really, that was kind of one of the first battles we had. And so it just reminds you that. You don't know what you don't know. Becoming an expert in him and becoming an advocate for him through all of those doctors and research, speaking with other moms, people with similar or like problems or characteristics of what was going on with him became important. And, oh, Lord, our our house has been turned upside down with so much equipment. Our living room was kind of transitioned into a little bit of a therapy room, but it probably, if you saw it this afternoon, it looks there today. It looks more like a parking lot. There's two different wheelchairs in there, one power chair we're trialing. There's a stander for school that we're supposed to be using here in the summer months. There's a stander for home because he has to be physically manipulated to stand to get some weight-bearing time during the day. There's literally a hospital cart of respiratory equipment. The machines that I described that we use in the morning are not small, uh, we have this pneumatic powered suction machine, the ventilator, the food pumps and all of the supplies that come. Oh, goodness, the DME, um, all of the orthotic devices that help keep his body straight or keep his feet from dropping his AFOs. There is just so much to be versed on. And again, I just keep thinking back to that experience we had with the dietitian at Hopkins and the nutrition consult that I've learned that the biggest thing we have to do is keep pushing. There's not one type of wheelchair. There's not one type of way to manage his spinal curvature. There's not one type of diet to be fed. There's not just one type of ventilator. That's right. That there's different ways to do his respiratory therapy, that there's these different medications. And so I feel like I've kind of gone to essentially what like the dark web is to the Internet, kind of in healthcare, like all these layers deeper. To not just see what's there on the surface, but everything that is needed underneath to operate successfully and push and get Carter what he needs by virtue of trying to know what I'm talking about with his rare disease in each aspect of, of his body and what those needs might be.
0: That all sounds really complex and in an environment that seems to be constantly changing, too. Insurance especially seems to be on shaky grounds these days. How has it been navigating those waters?
1: Well, first and foremost, having two full-time working parents, we are insanely fortunate that we can even afford primary insurance. That's not a luxury that a lot of people have. And by virtue of really kind of his, quote, disability status, Carter had a Medicaid plan that came online as secondary. And we experienced in the last year that plan being managed by our state in Virginia, being turned over to an MCO, a managed care. And all of a sudden, the amount of things that were being approved, the medications that had been formerly approved, and all those authorizations that we had fought so hard for to begin with, it's like we were starting over. The doctors that were in-network versus out-of-network, so, you know, co-insurance issues and these other things, still dealing with even bills that were a year old where we didn't have a secondary insurance. And therapists and the number of therapy sessions that are covered on an ongoing basis when it's time for a case to be renewed. It is a daily battle. You know, the most recent one I think you know about is his power chair. You know, he wasn't able to drive one before and now he can. And so that battle is going on over a year. And we're at a point where we have to go to the Supreme Court in our state um, as high as we possibly can to to try and get something that seems so inherently appropriate from where I sit after fighting so hard and meeting so many other families. But the rule actually changed two months before the claim was filed for it. And they just want to rest on that. And that's all they continue to say at our appeals. They are literally reading verbatim what's in this denial letter. And so it is an uphill battle each and every day. And I think the thing that is so concerning and also makes me so sad is With all of the knowledge, the healthcare connections, both, you know, in medicine, in health insurance, in, you know, facilitating care and interoperability, in knowing doctors who know some of the best specialists in the nation or in academia, I am someone that should probably know better than anyone, or just as well as some of the best, how to navigate the system of healthcare in this industry to... Make reasonable things that are appropriate happen for a child that needs them, that it is medically appropriate and necessary, and that is not what happens. So much of what we do is just met with a no, that I have adopted approach where now I expect the no. I just do not waste any more mental and physical frustrations and energy on just getting upset when I hear a no, because it is the de facto answer. In what is going on in America, whether it is private insurance or, you know, in this case, Carter's, you know, Medicaid insurance. And I have read through so many other forums, special needs moms group on Facebook and so many other things that people here know. And so many times i am seeing people either just deal with it, give up, take it for what it is, or are fighting the exact same battle that I am across the entire nation.
0: What would this power chair provide to Carter if it were to get approved? So Carter
1: not having the chair, at first he couldn't drive it, so a power chair wasn't a consideration. But now that he can use his chin, his mouth to talk like we talked about and eat, and his feet, there's a little switch under his foot that lets him look at almost like um, a cell phone screen on the power wheelchair and with an arrow direction and he can flex his toes to drive. Uh, There's also a switch that's connected to his chin or eyebrow. There's all these different adaptive technology devices that go on the chair that would allow him to use limited movement to move and really kind of be supportive of the activities he does. So he has a computer that has eye gaze that he can pull up to to do educational or, you know, activities on something that's not covered by insurance that we had to pay for. There's environmental controls within the house or the TV that can all be integrated through essentially what is like a Bluetooth technology to you and I, but through his wheelchair to navigate the footprint of our house, drive where he wants to drive. He could drive up and down an aisle at you know, Walmart or Target to look at the toys instead of crying and getting frustrated because somebody's not pushing him where he wants to go. He could rise up to be more at a bar height at the table where he now eats instead of having to sit down low. Just all of these different aspects. But essentially, insurance says no because, as the letter states, That unless it's going to help him breathe or alleviate the need for nursing care, which is not well staffed to begin with, that unless it's actually going to perform or allow him to perform an activity of daily living, like the wheelchair would let him brush his teeth himself, breathe himself, feed himself. The answer is no. They don't care that it's supportive of a quality of life or really is kind of ancillary to his activities of daily living that can be independently navigated without a chair. And so. That's kind of the battle that that we're fighting right now. And it's been, like I said, it's been one that's uphill. They just give this kind of default answer and just continue to rest on it. So just trying to argue and get letters of medical necessities known as LMNs from his physiatrist, his physical therapist, the seating vendor, the occupational therapist, all of these people that can, in clinical words, support kind of the progression of what he is now capable of with the device and how it would help with his activities of daily living to do these things. And unfortunately, all insurance sees is dollar signs, not that a little boy needs to get out of bed every morning, be properly positioned, and you might be mitigating spinal surgery to have a supportive seating system that fits his person. But none of that matters to them.
0: So at this time, You are experiencing a lot of different angles of the U.S. healthcare system as a mother or the chief medical officer of your family, as a patient advocate, and of course, as a health IT professional.
1: I feel like every facet that I could experience this system from, I have seen it to some extent in professional and or personal life and more so personal lately. And it's it's complex. It's not easy. It's not consumer-friendly. And it's, it is a very, very tangled web.
0: With all of the conversation around and actions taken in the name of value-based care, which is a concept you and I are both familiar with and have even given plenty of presentations on, how much has it actually come into your hemisphere on a personal level?
1: I think it definitely is. I think interoperability is always something that I've been passionate about. There are a lot of people in this country that are. There's a lot of people in health IT that are. And, you know, the constructs under which that would happen or data blocking and some of these other challenges and, you know, in blockchain, HL7, all of the things that are possible within really guidelines to facilitate it, yet it doesn't exist. And, you know, I think I remember in one of the first few times that we spoke, we were talking about really the the CEO of Epic Cerner and ECW Clinical Works going to lunch, that if they could just come up with some sort of pact, um, that they could make it happen. Because even when interoperability does happen, you have a doctor sitting there looking at pages of stuff in a CCD that they can't make heads or tails of or isn't really a meaningful snapshot of what they need to know. The first appointment follow-up we ever had was shortly after the new year, we'd come home and went to the neurologist, And the neurologist probably spent 22 minutes working on a medication reconciliation, staring at the screen of Cerner, trying to get that straight instead of listening to what we were there for, which was really kind of a sleep problem at the time that was so critical. And ultimately, by the end of the visit, we almost ended up leaving mistakenly without having addressed it. And the neurologist had to come back in the room. He was so obsessed with what was on the screen in front of him, getting those things in there, getting the check boxes right. And not that medication reconciliation is right, but I knew exactly what he was doing as he navigated every section of that note. And so even, you know, documentation within an EMR, interoperability, medical decision-making that, you know, supports high quality, low cost, are the questions they ask about Carter. Is he a former smoker, never smoker? Well, you know, he, he's four. No, he's, he's never smoked, fortunately or unfortunately, you know? And exactly what they're going through. And so it's a little bit frustrating because I have always believed and continue to believe that healthcare itself, not health insurance, not the industry, but healthcare is between a patient and a physician. And I've seen a lot of this really get in the way of that and knowing what that does to a patient and their family kind of end to end, being on both sides of the spectrum, both as someone that works in the space and as you know a mom that was about to leave that room, not really even addressing what, what I had come in for, is challenging. And you know even the decisions they make about spending and how things happen and the way care is directed, or times they've told us instead of coming in for a visit that you know you should just go to the ER, it's really really unfortunate because I went from a place of looking at where things intersected, and I think in a very outsider's view felt that things with value-based care, what we were asking physicians to do, what health systems were doing was really aligning to get us to a better place, you know, reducing plurality of service, you know, making sure that they had the information they needed to to do the things that were right by the patient at the right time. Here we are, it was really in its infancy a decade or a couple decades ago. And I, I kind of feel like we're no further along. And it's at the And it's come at the cost of patients' care and physician sanity.
0: So where could somebody find you if they wanted to follow Carter's story?
1: Carter has a Facebook page as a public figure at Carter Roberts coalition on Facebook. If you want to read more, follow about his journey, but you know, I would say two things. I think first, You know, I've I've heard the term about rare disease and unlike developing, you know, a drug for type 1 diabetes that's a silver bullet or some of these other things, there are so many diagnoses out there, things that are not understood, that don't get the time, money, or support of other things, that if you're passionate about one of those, you know, a family that has one or, you know, you want to learn more about Carter's, that the National Organization for Rare Disease, NORD. Does a lot of great work to give people that are doing groundbreaking research grants and the ability to do that because it really would take some sort of scientific miracle for him to get physically back to where he was. And it's just something that in this current day and age, in the way healthcare works. Isn't probably not going to be addressed in his lifetime. And I think that's unfortunate. I think there are so many people working separate on so many things that I think about what collaboration can do. And I think it's possible to do it in a way that people can still make a profit because I believe in that. I don't think research and development should be done in a vacuum and no one should get paid for the hard, brilliant work they do. Everyone should. And I believe it's possible, but I'd love to see more collaboration and more people caring about rare disease. And, you know, the last thing I would say is, there's a neighbor down the way from us who brought us a meal when we had to move in the middle of all this to find a home that was better suited for Carter. It came down here and she had a special needs project. Her son has autism. And it really opened my eyes to just the absolute gamut of what exists in the special needs community. And being on the other side of that equation now, I can say that I think I wasn't, not that I wasn't aware of it, but I think I had you know, just a genuine level of ignorance about what that meant or what that meant for someone's life, how it impacted an individual, their friends, their family, how they go to school, how they get in a car, all of these little things that is perfectly physically able and neuro-atypic human that I took for granted, and that it just changes everything. And until you live it, or you know someone that does, or you've been around it, its it's really hard to put into words. I would encourage people to just be more open to that and realize that it's so much more prevalent than you realize and the people that are dealing with those challenges and their own journeys, um, that it's it's unique to them. But to be considerate of those people and be mindful of it.
0: Kindness really can go a long way, can't it?
1: Absolutely. We've experienced a great deal of kindness in two years. You know, Carter hasn't gotten physically better, but we are insanely fortunate to be in the community we were and have the co-workers, friends, families, and strangers that we did surround us in the community we're in. And it just, I think about how many people have needs that are even somewhat similar that may not be getting that and all of these other factors of demographics, location, socioeconomic status, you know, determinants of health that impact so many other people. I think it really opened my eyes to kind of the outer rings of the healthcare system and the factors that those things ultimately you know, bear in others' lives that we don't think about or kind of take for granted sometimes.
0: Well, Robin, it is quite a journey that you are on. I do think it's time for this episode to come to a close, but I wanted to thank you so much for sharing your story and for just being so open and vulnerable about this deeply personal life event. I know Carter's situation influences your day-to-day life in a way that many of us can only imagine. So thank you again.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me and getting to share a little bit of his story and you know what it means for him and our family and if it's helpful to one person or makes them think about something different. That's all I would hope to accomplish and so thank you for letting me hit like a girl as, as a platform to, to share more about it.
0: Well, I am looking forward to this podcasting adventure that we are about to go on and really excited to hear from more smart ladies in health IT who pack a punch in their own way. I think it's really fitting to begin with your story since you are my eternal women crush Wednesday, pretty much every Wednesday.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. And as much as I enjoy talking to you, I'm so excited to see and hear from these other women in health IT, learning more about their lessons learned, challenges and contribution here on the podcast. So I look forward to every episode to come even more so.
0: If you want to join us on this podcasting adventure, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at hitlikeagirlpod or check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. Each episode will be saved there with additional links to topics that come up during the show and sometimes we'll add pictures. For this episode, we link to Carter's Coalition on Facebook and much more. Also, if you found value in this episode, it would mean the world to us if you would share it with just one person, whether it's a health IT colleague, friend, or family member. The Hit Like a Girl podcast is available on iTunes and your favorite podcast apps, where we welcome your reviews. Thank you very much. See you next time.